Well, thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19, the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to finish that chapter this morning. And uh, as I mentioned recently, I, I feel having gone through the book of Acts now up through this point that this chapter, chapter 19, is very possibly, at least in my opinion, the most dramatic chapter that we've come to, if not up to now, perhaps even in the whole book of Acts. And so we're going to finish out chapter 19 uh, this morning. And uh, I hope that it's going to be a challenge to you as it is to me. You know, this is, um, it seems like these last few passages we've gone through in this chapter have uh, really, really hit at some, some things that are uh, not only uh, difficult topics, but at the same time, uh, if we're willing to apply the things we learn out of this chapter of Scripture specifically, it can have implications that reach far, far, far across our lives. And so that's still the case as well this morning with the passage we're going to look at and the principle we're going to look at as well. I remember growing up off of Bonaventure Road when I was a kid, we'd ride our bikes all through that neighborhood. Uh, and there was one specific house that was about a quarter of a mile from, from our house where I grew up that uh, I never met the man who was there, but uh, he had to have been an interesting person at, at the very least because there was a point where he built on the corner of his property an idol. It was a statue that he would hold services to and he would have sacrifices and his uh, yard at times would, uh, or the street would have the uh, remains of that which he had sacrificed to that particular idol. And for obvious reasons, we as kids nicknamed him the voodoo man. And uh, so he had this thing built right there on the corner of his property. Never had the courage to introduce myself to him and uh, never had the privilege of having met him. But whenever we'd ride bikes, you'd ride right past that. It was just uh, made out of some clay-looking substance, had things that were, you know, imprinted into it and that made it into, I assume, the best that he could have done with his own hands. It was an idol. It was an object of his worship. Now, whenever we say the word idolatry, what we typically fashion in our minds is this picture very similar of some idol made out of gold or silver or clay or whatever it may be. Whenever we mention idolatry, we think of that idol that, is, that someone has built. And typically when we think of idolatry, we think of one of two things, either way back in the past in Bible days or we think of some country far, far away. But yet when we think about it, idolatry takes place all over this country in which we live. In fact, I would be willing to say right here in this building this morning, as in our first service, there are some who are nicely dressed. Sitting on your lap is a very expensive book called the Bible. And uh, when you look across your life, your life is filled with blessings. You probably drove here this morning. You're sitting in a room that is air-conditioned, that is comfortable, sitting on seats that are comfortable. And yet right here, in the midst of all of us, there are, I would say, a significant number of people who not only are followers of Christ, but are also, at the same time, worshiping some idol that's in your life. Now, whenever I was preparing for this message, I came across a quote by someone named R.C. Sproul. If you've ever listened to uh, pastors on the radio, read any books much in Christian circles, you may be familiar with his name. Listen to what he says. Speaking of idolatry, he says, it is foundational to everyone. Every human being knows the living God or knows of the living God because God has clearly revealed his character to everyone. And yet every person by nature represses that knowledge of the true God and exchanges it for a lie by creating idols as substitutes for the true God. That's in Romans chapter 1. He says that propensity does not end with conversion. (laughs) In other words, it doesn't go away once we come to Christ, become Christians. He says that strong drive within us to replace the living God with something more palatable to us remains even in the hearts and minds of the converted. Today, we do not fashion idols from stone, but we do fashion idols from ideas. And so I would say this morning that right here amongst us are those, and there have been times in my life where if I were to be honest with myself, I would have to say that there were idols that were present in my life. And for some of you here this morning, that may be the case as well. 
If you were to look up the word idol in the dictionary, it'd be a very simple definition, one you would expect, a representation of an object of worship. But I just want to give you a different, a different definition that comes just from my own understanding of what an idol is. It's very simple. And an idol, in my, in my sense, is just simply anything that comes between us and God. It doesn't matter what that may be. If it comes between us and God, then that, at that very point, is an idol in our lives. Well, as we come to Acts chapter 19, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find that the Apostle Paul is still on this third missionary journey. It's the third trip that he's made to take the gospel around the world to different points across the known world of that day. And on this third missionary journey, Paul, at the beginning of chapter 19, has come to a city called Ephesus. No small city, 250,000 population, fourth largest city in, in its day when Paul walked this earth in the first century. So this was an enormous city, and this was a large city. It was a city that was pagan at its very core. Uh, occultic practices took place there. They were commonplace. Uh, uh, idol worship, we're going to see a little bit more of that here in just a moment. People there in Ephesus did not know God. They did not know Jesus Christ. Paul, however, would bring the gospel there, and when the gospel took root in the city of Ephesus, what happened was there, there was a pretty decent number of folks that responded. They gave their lives to Jesus Christ, and they became, in the midst of this pagan city, followers of Christ. And so there was a church that was springing up there, First Baptist Church of Ephesus, not, not really. It was a church there in Ephesus that, that began to take root, and there were believers there that were, I mean, genuine followers of Jesus Christ, making a difference in their culture, and, and, uh, and they stood out like sore thumbs, as we're going to see here in chapter 19. Well, whenever we look at the city of Ephesus, and whenever we look in this chapter specifically, we're going to find here that there was going to be a, uh, a point where the gospel would intersect that culture in a very dramatic fashion. The gospel taking root in the city of Ephesus, lives being changed, would cross section with the culture in a way like never before, and we're going to read of it here in chapter 19. And so pick up with me this morning in verse 21 of Acts 19, looking at a message entitled, Dethroning Idols, beginning in verse 21 of Acts chapter 19. We'll move through slowly. At the end, we'll make some application. And uh, I truly, sincerely hope that for those for whom this message would apply, that uh, you would listen to the conviction that God brings and respond in obedience as he leads you. Verse 21, it says, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now here was Paul's drive. Paul wanted to get the gospel to the city of Rome because all roads led to Rome. And Paul knew that if he could get the gospel to the city of Rome, then that gospel would spread everywhere around the Roman Empire. It would go every direction. So Paul had a drive to get to Rome. So that verse says, after these things, that's referencing everything that had happened in chapter 19. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. This is the tail end of that time. Paul would leave the city of Ephesus, as we're going to see soon. But before he would leave, there would be this little occurrence that would take place. So Paul has his sights set on Rome, and he begins to capture for us an event that took place there before he would leave. Verse 22, it says, Having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. The way was simply a reference to believers. They were often referred that, in, in that term in the first century. Of course, Jesus would describe himself as the way, the truth, the life. It's probably where that came from. And so Christians were called the way. And it mentions to us there that there was no small disturbance. That, that is putting it lightly. Because what you're about to, to hear, what you're about to read, is that the city of Ephesus is going to be turned upside down because of its interaction with the gospel here. 
And so pick up with me, verse 24. Wait, wait, uh, let, let, me, let me make mention of this. You're going to hear in verse 24 the mention of, uh, the, uh, of someone named Artemis and, and shrines that were built to Artemis. You're going to see that in verse 24. Let me read this verse and I'll give a little bit of backstory as to what's going on there. Verse 24, it says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Well, if, if you're paying attention up to this point, your question is, who is this Artemis? Well, in the city of Ephesus, you've heard me mention this before, there was a temple of Artemis. Your translation may say the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 columns, 60 feet high, absolutely impressive. And this temple of Artemis was the centerpiece in the city of Ephesus of, Ephesus of their false worship. It was believed that the, the image of Artemis fell down from heaven, from the hand of Zeus. That was what the Ephesians believed. That this image of Artemis, this goddess of fertility, that it fell down from heaven. In fact, just jump ahead for a second. Look down to verse 35. It says, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? See, they believed that the city of Ephesus was the guardian city of this false goddess of fertility. There were at least 33 different sites, shrines built to this false goddess around the Roman Empire, but Ephesus was the centerpiece. They believed that her image fell from heaven. They were the guardian of her temple. That was the mentality there. And false, false worship took place regularly. Well, a part of that worship was household idols built out of silver that were placed in the homes of the Ephesians. And so they would buy these little silver uh, 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 household idols. They'd place them in their homes or they'd place them in their, in their, their, uh, somewhere on their property and they would engage in worship to Artemis through the worship of these little household idols. At times they would offer those idols in worship. They'd buy more. It was a huge business. Well, verse 24 mentions one of these silversmiths that's working. His name is Demetrius. And it says right there uh, in uh, verse 24 that, that he brought in no little business. In other words, he was getting filthy rich, and all silversmiths in that town were by what they were doing in building these particular idols. Verse 25, it says, These he gathered together, these other silversmiths, with the workmen of similar trades. And he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. In other words, all of these men who are silversmiths are beginning to gather together because they are fighting mad that people are coming to Christ and they're leaving false gods to worship Jesus. And they're losing money as a result of it. You say, I, I can't relate to that. Just follow me for a second. Imagine this. Imagine that you are the sole provider of everything green in the city of Savannah. All right? You with me so far? If you're with me, say I'm with you. Okay, that's good. You're awake. You are the sole provider of the color green in Savannah. Anything green that gets produced and put out in this city, it's going to come through you, and you're going to get paid for it because you're the only person in town who does that. 
Well, you have your sights set on a specific weekend. It's called St. Patrick's Day weekend in our city, March 17th. And you know you're going to cha-ching, you're going to make a killing over St. Patrick's Day weekend over that whole week because everything is green. Well, imagine as you look forward to that particular day, everything is, culmi- is going to culminate on that day. Everything is working towards that. And imagine just one month before St. Patrick's Day comes, those who make decisions in this city pass an ordinance that no longer will St. Patrick's Day be green, but it will now be orange. And you've got a garage full of green stuff. I mean, you got green making machinery, you got green hats and green shirts and green beads and green everything, and it's all worthless. How long will it take you to go down to where those are that made the decisions and burn their building down, all right? Because you just lost a ton of money. That's the way these guys feel. They make these silver shrines, they get filthy rich off of it, and now the gospel comes, people turn to Christ, they're no longer worshiping idols, they are now worshiping God, they are worshiping Jesus, they have no need of idols, they're not buying idols, their business is plummeting, business has never been worse, and they are fighting mad. Verse 26, Lou Holtz couldn't give a better workup speech than this, by the way. Verse 26, he says to these silversmiths, you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded, and he has turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worships will even be dethroned from her magnificence. This was big stuff. You've got a clash of the gospel with idols. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions for Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples wouldn't let him. Man, Paul was an absolute bulldog. And he was not going to be kept. This is the whole city, for crying out loud. 250,000 people that are against him, against the gospel, except for a few Christians. And Paul says, i got to get in there. Verse 31, it says, some, uh, uh, Paul's friends, verse 30, the disciples would not let him. Verse 31, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him, and they repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Things had, um, had declined so badly. Verse 32 tells us how bad things had become. It says, so then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had even come together. That's a pretty good description of most church business meetings, by the way. Verse 32. Some shouting one thing, some another. Assembly was in confusion. Most didn't even know why they were even there. This had declined pretty quickly. Paul's right in the middle of it. Hmm. Well, the Jews that are there who had not come to Christ, and there were some in the city, they start thinking, you know, they're going to lump us all together if we're not careful. We don't follow Christ, but we, do serve, we attempt to serve the God they serve. So we've got to do something because we're going, to, we're going to get crushed in this mob as well. So they put up this fellow named Alexander to, uh, poor Alexander, you know, to, to try to or, you know, just convince the Ephesians, this mob, that, hey, we're not with them. <laughs> we're Jews, they're Christians, we're not with them. Look at what it says next. It didn't work well. It says, verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. That defense would have probably sounded like this. Hey, we're Jews. They're Christians. We don't even know them, so go easy on us. Verse 34, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, 
A single outcry rose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, just to summarize the last few verses there, I won't read each one of them. Basically, there was the the town clerk who was the highest ranking civil servant, if you want to use that terminology. He, with with a cool head, ultimately stepped up and he, and he told the Ephesians that day, hey, listen, we need to knock this off. There are courts that can handle this kind of thing. They're open. They're in session. We can take it to the courts. But if we don't quiet down and we don't uh, 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 scatter this mob that's taking place here, the Roman Empire is going to take away our civil liberties, our rights, and we're going to be crushed as a result of this. And so verse 41, the last verse says, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This, is, this was a dramatic scene. We read it in black and white, and, and, and it seems you know, somewhat intriguing and, and, uh, and gripping. But I'm telling you, if you were on the front row and you were watching all this stuff unfold, your adrenaline would have been rushing through your veins, and you would have been so fired up, you would have been scared, you would have been wondering which direction to go, because this was an intense, an intense experience. As this whole city came face-to-face with the gospel, and that gospel threatened everything that that city was about because of their idol worship. And there's a key verse in verse 27, and it's at the very end of that verse. And the fear of the Ephesians was that the whole world would ultimately, those who worshipped Artemis would see her dethroned from her magnificence. The truth is, it's not just Ephesians 2,000 years ago who engage in the worship of idols. With an idol being anything that comes between us and God, it happens every day (laughs) in places even just like this. And so what's your idol this morning? What comes between you and God? You may be surprised it's not something you build with your hands. It may be something as simple as a career. Stepping on people as you move forward, scratching, clawing, leaving behind all the principles that Scripture speaks of just to make a name, just to make a buck, just to earn a position. And it's that career and what it takes to get there that even though it's in and of itself good, you've turned it into an idol. And it stands squarely between you and God. It may be a, an attitude. It may be anger that you love to bring it out whenever you need it. It may be a sense of having to be in control. And it doesn't matter whether it's your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or those that, that come alongside you. You have got to be in control. And that control is an idol in your life. It doesn't matter what God wants for you. You're going to be in control regardless of what it costs those around you. And it stands squarely between you and a heart of humility and God. It may be some prejudice. You know, I was having lunch with a guy this week that made a great statement. It's not unique to me, but I completely agree with it. He said, you know, everybody has some level of prejudice in their lives, even if it's prejudice against prejudiced people. I thought that's pretty good. <laughs> I can't stand people that are prejudiced. kind of sounds like you're well, prejudiced against prejudiced people. You know, and we've all got it. Sometimes for some, that becomes an idol in our lives, you know. It may be a behavioral act. It may be a willful choice. It may be something we drink or something 
that has invaded our lives. It may be, as I mentioned last week, pornography. It, may be a, it could be a thousand, a million different things, but it's something that has come between you and God, and it has worked its way, Christian, as a wedge into your life to where your life is not yielded to God the way that God wants it to be. You've become a fan of God, and you clap at the right spots, and you pray at the right spots, and you do all the little things, but when it gets to the heart of the matter, and the dust settles, and the fog clears, what is revealed is that your heart is less than that of a follower of Christ. You're a, a huge fan of Jesus, but you're not following him with a life that is yielded and sacrificed and surrendered. And there's a tremendous difference. Maybe for you it's seeking the approval of other people. Maybe you put the fear of man ahead of the fear of God. Maybe you care more about what man thinks than what other people think. And there may be, or, or than what God thinks. There may be times for you, for example, when you're out and, and you're, uh, you know, you're doing your business or you're carrying out your routine and, and there are certain things that you do, some certain things that, that you will seek to do just so that other people will recognize you for it. And it's not because of seeking God's approval but the approval of man. There may be some who are here you may be a student, you may be single, you may be uh, ultimately uh, uh, making decisions with your own body, with things that you will one day hold so much more precious than you do today, and you're doing it just to seek the approval of another guy, of another girl, of a man or a woman, rather than to seek the approval of God. And it's an idol in your life. It's come between you and God. And when weighed in the balance, do I honor God? Do I do what they want? Boom. Man wins every time. And so what idol? has presented itself in your life. Tim Keller calls idolatry the sin beneath the sin. It's the sin beneath the sin. In fact, he, he describes idolatry in this way. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, to your meaning in life, or to your identity. And if you seek your happiness or if you seek your meaning in life or if you seek your identity in anything other than God, it's at that very point that you have described and identified an idol in your life. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, the theologian, you may have studied him if you've ever studied the Reformation. Martin Luther said that whenever a person breaks commandments 2 through 10 of the 10 commandments, we cannot break commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking commandment number 1. That is insightful. Because if I lie or if I steal or if I covet or if I commit adultery, I cannot commit those specific sins without first breaking the sin of having no other God before me. And behind every behavioral sin, follow me on this. This will go a little bit deeper. It'll go as deep as you want to go, but just try to follow me. Behind every behavioral sin, let's use coveting as an example. That's nice and benign. It's nice and safe. Behind every behavioral sin where I choose to sin, where I choose to covet, lies the sin of idolatry. And behind every sin of idolatry lies a failure to trust in the sufficiency of the gospel in my life. Here's how it plays itself out. Man, that guy's got a sweet boat. If I could just have that boat, if I could just have his house, I mean, if I had that guy's job, if whatever it takes, if I could just have his job, I don't know why God doesn't give me that job. I don't know why I can't have that business. He doesn't work hard as me. He doesn't do as good as I do. He's not as creative thinking as I. He's not the right person. I'm the right person. If I could just have that job. And we begin to covet. 
And that coveting builds as a wedge between us and God. And underneath that idolatry of coveting is the sin of not trusting that what I have been given by God is enough. And that the gospel makes me complete. Does that make sense? And so here's a step that we can take. Whenever we're tempted to sin in whatever specific way, if it's in the work world and you know we're tempted you know if i if i can just shade the truth a little bit and maybe not tell the complete truth here you know i might get a raise or i might get this account or i might be able to impress my boss whenever we're tempted to sin in some way that involves our behavior why don't we take a step back and why don't we just why don't we just pause and ask ourselves why do i feel a desire to sin in this way and why am i not trusting that god has already given me what i need through my relationship with Christ as a believer. I don't have to tell a lie to get this account because worse comes to worse, I lose the account. I have my integrity intact. God's going to provide because he's promised. I don't have to lower my standards to, re, to, to meet the approval of this person who wants far more from me than God wants me to give. I don't have to stoop to that level because worse comes to worse, I lose them. Their friendship but my integrity is intact and God will honor me and he'll provide for me what I need because I'm complete in Christ as a believer. And so behind every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry, something that we place before God. And behind every sin of idolatry is a failure to just trust that the gospel is true. So here's a principle for you. Jot it down and I'll close. You can dethrone the idols of your life if you've identified one this morning. You can dethrone those idols in your life by replacing them with reliance upon the truth of the gospel. And where you've crafted an idol in whatever form or fashion, that thing that has come between you and God, what you can begin doing starting today is not only confessing it, God, forgive me, I'll put this thing, this relationship, this person, whatever it is, ahead of you, forgive me, cleanse me, and he'll do it as a, for you as a believer. You can begin today saying, Lord, help me to understand whenever I'm tempted. Help me to understand that I don't need that which I've idolized, that the gospel is enough for me. Listen to what it says. Don't turn there for the sake of time, but jot down the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to what it says. It says, in him, in Jesus, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and over all authority. What idols are in your life this morning? What has God put his finger on to say, you know, that's come between you and me, Christian. You have the capacity, and it's in your, it's in your, it's in your, your will to do so. To say, Lord, today I dethrone that idol, and I trust that I'm enough, that you're enough for me, that I'm complete in Christ, and today I follow you with my whole heart. Let's pray. For some this morning as believers, you have a choice to make as to where your allegiance will fall. Will it fall upon the person of Christ, wholehearted, devoted follower of him? Or will you continue to allow certain idols to wedge themselves between you and Jesus? For those of you that don't know Christ, that you have the privilege today of making a decision to turn from that sin that he has already died to forgive And to surrender your life to Christ, inviting him to come and to take over your life and to forgive you. He'll answer that prayer every single time. He'll forgive you. He'll wipe the slate clean. 
He'll become your God, and he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you if you'll just yield your life to him today. And God, we thank you today that we can look in your word. What a picture of where idols intersect with the gospel, with you. Lord, you are the one true living God. And each time we, fab- we fashion idols in our lives, things that we put before you, Lord, those are never sufficient. They are never uh, able to endure. They're never able to fill or to satisfy as you do. And so, Lord, help us to identify those idols, to confess them when they're there, and help us to be willing to dethrone them by trusting that we are complete in Christ as Christians. And for those that don't know you, Lord, I pray that today they'd make that choice to give their lives to Jesus. And so bless these decisions that we make this morning, Lord, big decisions all over this room, I pray. And may you be honored through the choices we make to follow you this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.